I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is author and adventurer, Rochelle Chase. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Michelle Chase, author of Creating the Black Utopia of Buxton, Iowa, and Lost Buxton, has given more than 80 presentations about the amazing town of Buxton, and has now turned her attention to sharing with corporations the lessons that we can learn today from Buxton. Michelle recently launched a nonprofit, Uniting Through History, to promote unity by furthering knowledge of and acceptance of the Black history is American history through immersive experiences enabling people to connect with history. Uniting Through History recently wrapped up on their first annual HIP History Contest in which middle school and high school students use their artistic creativity to bring the story of Buxton to life for a chance to win nearly $6,000 in prizes. Rochelle is a former senior business analyst for Fortune 500 companies, a model, published romance author, and podcaster. For more information, please visit rochellechase.com or unitingthroughhistory.org. Rochelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hi, Stuart. You have a motto, which is life is about the chase. And we may chat about that directly, but I expect that your life philosophy is actually going to become apparent as, as we talk. But let me ask first, if it's okay, to uh, invite you to offer a prologue for our conversation. And the question for that prologue is, what was your childhood like? Tell me about your childhood. My childhood, well, for the bulk of my childhood, I was an only child. And my siblings came later when I was 13 or 14. So I was very close to my parents. They were very young. We moved around a lot when I was coming up. Mom loved to travel, loved new places. So I ended up going to probably been about to about 14 schools by the time I graduated um, from, you know, high school. What's interesting is in, in this traveling, you know, you meet new people, you have new experiences, but books were kind of like my constant, you know, throughout that. And in fourth grade, I was reading, um, you know, adult books, uh, teenage books. My parents believed in letting me read whatever I wanted to as long as, you know, they thought I could handle it. Well, just an example, and this ties into what I'm going to say later, is I was in fourth grade and you have show and tell and I went to show and tell and I was sharing this book that I read that was so exciting. This girl had run away from home and she went to like LA and became a prostitute. And I was sharing this with the class. And my teacher, of course, called my mom and said, you know what, Rochelle's sharing inappropriate things for show and tell. And my mom told me, you know, Rochelle, we let you talk about things and we explain things, but not everybody's like that. And so if you continue to do this, we're going to take your books away from you. And this, I remember to this day, the absolute horror I felt that the idea of having like no books in my life. And so I never, never shared that another book, you know, and for show and tell again. 
So all of this is to say, I think some of these things that have happened have shaped who I am today, this love of books, the love of reading, the love of stories, the love of even, you know, getting stories from people. And that moving around as an adult, I think has kind of tied into my philosophy about, you know, life being about the chase for me, meaning there's new opportunities, there's, you know, you seize the moment, you take advantage of opportunities that come your way, I go for dreams. And that coupled with, you know, my the way my parents raised me was this, you can be anything you want and do anything you want. So I think those are some of the things from my childhood that have shaped, you know, who I am today. We'll certainly come back to books, but it's quite arresting to hear someone talk about being an only child until sort of early teens. And also to hear you talk about changing, uh, for example, schools so many times and moving around so much. It all sounds uh, very dynamic. Um, I think those formative years, you know, since this was this moving around was happening during those years. I think it taught me today to be able to adapt to change. Um, It taught me to, in a way, like change because you know, irrationally, when I'm moving around to these different schools, every new school was a new opportunity, right? It was this opportunity where I was going to be something that I wasn't, I was going to be popular, I was going to be this, I was going to be that. And of course, in every school, I was never those things. I was always the same, you know, Rochelle, which was, yes, I I like to consider myself an introvert with extrovert tendencies, meaning yes, I'm social, I talk to people. But I need a lot of alone time. And usually I have one good friend when I was little. In fact, my parents would try to make me go outside and they're like, do you want to go outside? And I say, nope, I want to stay in here. And they're like, well, you're going to go outside. So, you know, point I'm making is I think that happening in those years, it made me very adaptable. And as long as we started at at the beginning of a school year, I didn't mind that because there was still a chance to meet people when it was the middle of the year, everybody's kind of got their friends. And so I always felt a little bit, you know, left out in that instance. I think you said around age 13, 14 was when you started to welcome siblings. Yes. Actually, I I take that back. I was, yeah, I guess it was 12 or 13 because then I left home at 16, 17. So it wasn't really a whole lot of time. Um, And there was such a big age difference. You know, I remember babysitting. I always worked. I always had jobs during summer after school. Well, one summer, I think it was the summer before I left home, I babysat my brother and sister and they were two and three, I think at that time. And I I jokingly call that my summer of in hell, uh, if I can say that. (laughs) Because I was like, wow, this is what motherhood is like. This is, you know, it's this constant, you know, you get up and they're like two and three. And so it's this constant, you know, getting them to take a nap, feeding them, you know, getting them cleaned up. Then it's nap time. Then you get to clean up the kitchen. Then it's time to start dinner. And I was like this constant for months. And I thought, okay. I am obviously not mother material. I don't think this is what I can do. And, you know, and then my parents had never stressed kids. They're always like, live your life. If you want kids, that's great. But there was never this expectation. So my point is, my brother and sister, you know, they were young when I left home. So I really got to know them, you know, as I would visit, you know, throughout from, you know, college And, you know, when I would come home and stay and it's really once they became adults is when we become really close. So like my sister and I are BFFs, uh, my brother and I are close, my whole family, we're all close. But then it was it was quite different. And I do think sometimes that is why I don't have 
kids today is because, you know, I realized that this is a huge sacrifice. This is a huge, this is a huge thing. And plus that combined with the fact that my parents never stressed it, they were always like, you know what, live your life, you know? So, yeah. Where were you born and where are some of the places that you've lived until this point when you hit age 17 and went out into the world? Yeah, a lot of the moving around may have taken place in the same state. So it wasn't like it was always a different state. I was born in Seattle. So we moved around a lot there, Seattle, little towns, Tacoma, Puyallup, and then there would be different schools sometimes, you know, in the places we we moved. And then we moved to Alaska, moving around in Alaska. We moved to Colorado, there was moving around in Colorado. And then um, that's where I went to, you know, that's where I graduated and went to college. Interestingly enough, I was applying to different colleges there in, in, uh, in Colorado, and I had applied to the College of Notre Dame, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is like the Notre Dame, awesome, I'm going to apply to that, got accepted, found out that it wasn't the Notre Dame, it was in California, it was a little Catholic college in California, but by then I had dis- decided that, I mean, I loved the idea of California, and so I'm like, well, even though it's not the Notre Dame, I'm still going to go to California, so that's how I ended up um, living in California for most of my, a lot of my adult life. But again, it was a lot of moving around within in California and then leaving there sometimes and coming back. So that kind of moving around has followed me into adulthood um, as well. Um, you know, I even lived outside the country for a bit. So it's like, it's been, it's been a lot of, uh, a lot of change. Don't you want to have fun? Said that they don't got a future, future like that. It burns, so give him something worse to kill his head with, make him forget somehow. Might be that another day she would have wished he stayed, but they're done. Sorry, this won't be enough this time. Yeah, he's calling all his friends to get some action and distract him right now. He's fine, but Lucy on the line, let's get this started. Where's the party tonight? So books, they were clearly very important to you when you were a child, as you described. Being an author isn't, however, the first thing that you jumped into. So it's important for us to talk about the two books, Buxton, but that is not where you started your writing career. So how did your writing career start? And I'm also curious, not only how it started, but perhaps why it wasn't the first thing that you did. It never really occurred to me never to write books. You know, when I was going to go to college, I thought I love reading. Maybe I'd major in English, you know, because, you know, that's related. 
And, you know, then, you know, it's like, that's not practical. What are you going to get a job doing if you major in English? And I liked science, so I majored in pre-med. And so, or biology, I should say, with the intention of, you know, going on to medical school. Um, so I never thought I could write. Um, I loved reading. It just never occurred to me. Uh, I took a, like a literature class uh, once, I forget what, I think that was at the community college after I graduated from school, because it was like, oh, let me just kind of see. And I wrote this, this story about my rabbit, you know, dying in my arms and whatever. And it's interesting there in the teacher would anonymously read per people's work and people would get feedback to it, feedback on it. And that was my first experience of like thinking of what, you know, great writers would have experienced that are long gone and we talk about their works because I literally wrote a story about my rabbit dying in my arms and everyone in the class was like, oh, I think that symbolizes, you know, hurt and it symbolizes this and they wove all this deep meaning into it. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, it's a rabbit that died, literally, you know, whatever. And then I thought, well, I wonder what, you know, great writers, you know, if they were here today and we they hear us having classes, lit classes, talking about the great depth of their work, maybe they would feel the same way. So that's an aside story, just to say that I dabbled in it a little bit there, but still didn't do anything with it. And it wasn't until I was doing one of my usual, I'd quit my job, packed up my RV, sold my house, and I was traveling around and staying every three months at, uh, like, this was Craigslist at the time, I was finding places to stay at. And while I was doing that, I said, you know what, I'd love to take a class, discovered the online writing class, took it, and that was offered by Lee Michaels. I had read Romance as a Kid Coming Up, and my instructor was Lee Michaels. She, you know, was a very hard instructor, but gave me feedback on, you know, that, hey, you have some talent with a little bit of work, a lot of work, you might actually be able to do something with that. Coincidentally, she lived here in Iowa, and I would visit her throughout, and that's how I got here in Iowa. So it always felt like my writing was a shock, like, oh my gosh, this came out of nowhere. But then when I look back, and I look back that when I was younger, and I would at night in bed, every night, I would replay my favorite scenes and books over and over and over again. And I'd say, okay, I changed that. No, 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 that's not right. And I would literally replay them and replay them. And this was something I looked forward to, because it was like, I got to like relive these scenes. And so when I look back at that, and I look back at this oh, it was a, an accident. Who knew? It's like, well, you know what? There were signs along the way that maybe you had some ability to st tell stories or write. How did that begin? So um, the business of getting um, you know, a book published and then another book and another book. Yeah, well, I started with romance and I had really, again, I didn't quite know what I wanted to write. Um, I'd read a lot of romances and I really liked the genre. And so I would just go to conferences, start learning. You know, I took the classes with Lee, um, writing classes. And I would just, you know, go to conferences, work on the craft. I would pitch things to agents and editors whenever I, you know, met them. Or I'd hear this person would say, oh, we're looking for supernatural. It's like, okay, I'd write a story about demons and whatever. Um, we're looking for chiclet. Okay, fine. I'd write a story about that. I mean, I thought, I don't really know exactly, but I'm kind of getting into this whole writing thing, right? And then for some reason, the erotic uh, romance stuck. Um, somebody they was looking for that and I wrote something and that ended up being the thing that somebody, an, a small publisher at that time was interested in. And so I sold it myself and just negotiated the contract. That book 
led to a book with Kensington, the New York publisher. And I was determined, even though it was a, I was a new author, I did not want to write a full book. Because again, I'm not really good at doing things sometimes if there's no deadline. So it's like writing a new book just for the fun of it when nobody wants it. Uh, when Kensington liked the first three chapters that I'd sent, they're like, okay, go off and write it and send us the rest. And I was like, I don't want to write it and finish the rest. What can I do to make you believe that I can write this book? And my editor at that time had said, well, write a sex scene. And so I wrote a sex scene and she said, okay, I think you can do this. And so I was able to sell my very first book on proposal, a fiction book, which was not really the norm. Um, so that's how I kind of got a start. And I had a higher literary agent or literary attorney to help me negotiate that contract. So I did not go through an agent at that time. I think many aspiring writers wouldn't have the um, temerity to push back like that. And I, I wonder if that's just a particular part of your character. You have a certain fortitude that if it, if it, if it doesn't fit, then you'll just say no. I think the reason I'm that way, and again, I talk about being close to my family. Um, my dad and would talk to me about anything, anything I wanted to talk to. We'd have these long conversations all throughout my childhood. And he always said, you can be whoever you want. Um, and if you don't, you know, attain certain things, it's because you didn't want it hard, bad enough, or you didn't try. There's like, you know, you, you really go for things you want. And then my mom provided the other part of that of, you know, hey, you can go anywhere, do anything. I mean, kind of that travel part. So my point is the reason why I feel like I don't really accept no. I feel like if there's a win-win here, if I can come up with something that, you know, that's a win-win for both of us, I'm going to try. Um, there's no such thing as no. And sometimes, of course, there is. But you try as if there's no such thing as no. Let's turn to Buxton. Could you just give us the background to, you know, what Buxton was? Yeah, um, Buxton was a coal mining town that was established in 1900 by the Consolidation Coal Company, which was owned by the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad. And it was very different from other coal mining towns at that time. It was established, like I said, in 1900. And at that time, a lot of times, you know, coal mining towns were very basic. You know, they, they um, people lived in shacks. You know, there wasn't a lot of entertainment. Buxton, the town itself was very different in that 
it was not like that. There were more than 40 different businesses in addition to the company store, um, et cetera. It was, uh, you had, you know, multiple churches people could belong to, go to whichever one they wanted, unlike other coal mining towns. So there were these aspects of Buxton which were very different from coal mining towns at that time. But the number one thing that makes Buxton quite different was this, the fact that at the time, it was for most of its existence, the majority of the population was African-American. And here you have that in a state that was, you know, 99.3% white. You've got this town that's 40 to 55% black for most of its existence. And not only did you have that, but you had, while there's Jim Crow and lynching of black people and massacres and all of this going on around the, the country at the time of Buxton, in Buxton, you know, blacks and whites were treated equal. So you had um, black people working in the mines together, working in the company store, black people and white people shopping together. They were neighbors next door to each other. You had black doctors and lawyers and dentists um, and business owners, and you would have some of like the, the company doctor, one of them was black and he was seeing both black and white patients. So you had this really, this phenomenal development of you know integration and equity happening at a time when that was not the norm in the country. And that was not even the norm in Iowa because many of the residents that were interviewed talked about the fact that even it was literally in the middle of farmland and you had clan activity going on in these far in these communities but yet and still in this town of Buxton you you didn't experience any of that how did this come to be there was a town before Buxton called Muchikanak or Muchi or Muchikinak Kinok it's been pronounced different ways um, and it was established in 1873 by the McNeil brothers and they had, um, you know, some of the miners were striking. So in around 1880, uh, 1879, they started recruiting African-Americans to come in from Virginia. They were not the first to do this. Um, there were a few other mines in Iowa at that time that had done it. But they were the first to have kind of paid these men equal wages when they came. So it really started, believe it or not, way back then. And when the mines played out there in Muchie, then Buxton was formed in 1900. And then the, in the early years, that, that you know, recruitment continued. And then people would tell friends and you know, family members and they would come as well. So that's how you ended up getting such a large um, black population in, in Buxton. Is there anything in particular about in your research and writing the stories and, and the pictorial representation of Buxton, is there anything in particular that surprised you? I think one thing that surprised me was um, one of the prominent African-Americans in Buxton, or I should say in Muchie before Buxton, you know, in was about 1873, and he had married a German woman. So it was like an interracial marriage, you know, back then. From what I could tell, there was no, you know, they weren't like elsewhere, you know, where you could be lynched for simply accidentally touching a white woman or, or bumping into one. And yet and still here in this town, it was, or in the state, it was accepted. And then also in Buxton also, you had numerous instances of, of interracial marriages. So what struck me as kind of interesting about that and listening to, I listened to tapes from prior residents who had lived in Buxton that were done in 1980. And I listened to them and people were talking about life there. Some of the, the white people that were talking about residents, they used the N word when they were talking about black people. 
But when they were asked about interracial marriages, it was like, they just said, oh yeah, so-and-so was, so-and-so was. And there was like no reaction, no anything. Um, so that was a little bit surprising to me. I think learning the fact that, like I said, what was going on in the country at that time and the fact that you had um, Dr. E.A. Carter, who was the com a black company doctor there and was actually the first African-American to graduate from the University of, of Iowa with a medical degree. He was in Buxton and the fact that he was treating black and white patients and also had a white assistant working underneath him. So there were these things that when I looked at, you know, what was happening in the rest of the country, those kinds of things were just so amazing to me because again, it was not the norm. And it really sparked, because Buxton was such an anomaly, it really sparked my interest in broadening my research and my interest in history and, you know, what the Black experience was like at that time beyond Buxton. So here we are um, living in the era of uh, the internet. Everything feels, you know, all-knowable. Clearly, 100 years ago, the ability for information to disseminate more broadly is narrower. Nonetheless, people within Buxton must have been aware that this was an anomaly and wondering what their thoughts were, as so far as you know, what, what their thoughts were about that. And also the reactions outside of Buxton, that there must have been a sense in other parts of Iowa and beyond that Buxton was an odd place that didn't conform to what was happening elsewhere. The people in Buxton, uh, when they left, um, you know, or when the town folded again because the mines played out, um, and I must, I meant to mention Buxton had a population of 5,000 people. And at that time, it was considered the largest unincorporated town in Iowa, and some have said even in the U.S. at that time. So this was a good-sized town. So when, when Buxton folded and people were interviewed about their time there, they felt like, again, they were going back in time when they left, you know, when they left Buxton, um, because then they are going back to segregation. And, you know, some of them, like one gentleman had talked about, you know, jobs he could get were like a shoeshine, you know, um, person, a woman who had been a, a teacher there was offered domestic work. Um, but these people, and, but, you know, he went and started his own business. So my point is the people that lived there, um, and given that a lot of them were coming from the South, uh, this was a, a place of, you know, of opportunity uh, for them. In terms of the perception of Buxton at that time, it is interesting when you, when you talk about the lack of, inter of internet, it is amazing the role that newspapers played. Uh, well, of course, it's not amazing. I mean, it's amazing to me that it was able to disseminate information so much, meaning the Black community in the U.S. in some ways was very small because you had these Black newspapers that were the conduit for here's all the things that are happening, you know, in this town and this town. And then I found a book that was produced annually um, for a few years. You know, it was the Negro Yearbook in 1913. So they had these books that would come out that would talk about, oh, here's all these Black towns. Here are all these Black schools. Here's all of this. And so people kind of knew of places to go. And then, you know, like Booker T. Washington came to Buxton. So, I mean, I mean people and Madam C.J. Walker came to Buxton. So, you know, there was this network and this communication where, you know, Black people knew about, about this town. In terms of the perception that it had beyond that, it, you know, it really varies. It seems like a lot of the newspapers love to sensationalize Buxton and talk about the negatives. 
there was the Bystander, which was a black newspaper, which is a great resource because it talks about, you know, there were, they had reporters that were dedicated to covering Buxton. And so you would read about the going ons, you know, the teas, so-and-so's having a tea and, you know, this business opened and this minister is doing this and this person's in town. So this was a great paper of, you know, getting that perspective. Then you looked at a lot of the other ones at that time, and they focused on another murder in Buxton, you know, another, you know, shooting, another whatever. And people there in town, you know, that were asked about this afterwards, resented that because they felt like this is a safe town, you know, and they felt that it was very much exaggerated that yes, there was gambling in the areas surrounding Buxton, what you call the suburbs of Buxton. And yes, there were, you know, there were some shootings, stabbings, you know, etc. But they were no more than any other town of that size. And it was usually due to gambling, drinking or domestic disputes. So that is kind of kind of the perception within Buxton and then kind of that that perception without You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. It's not my fault. You've been lying, saying that I took away your peace. Drowning by yourself, now you want to blame me. Like you have no options, I take your options. Now I'm not the problem, man. That's on you. Yeah. You've been terrorizing me. Yeah, I'm always wrong. I knew you lost your mind when you dropped that bomb. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is author and adventurer Rochelle Chase. I've been thinking lately, lately it's you You stole your peace, put it on me But baby it's you Lying like a rat, but take your stuff back So as you mentioned that the town slowly dissolved with the fortunes of its main business, which was coal mining and its association with the railroads. So the town, like I, I, I think if we look at rural America now, you're, you're in Iowa now, you can, you can see the, the continued impacts of what happens when the demand for people shifts and, and people leave once thriving communities to go elsewhere. So Buxton has in some ways become this um, ghost town that I'm sure many people hardly remember. So how did you find out about it and, and what compelled you to be this sort of um, detective of history? My friend Lee Michaels, who I had taken that online romance writing class with, um, when I finished the first class, this was in mm, 2000, 
And again, this is when I was doing that driving around and 9-11 had happened and I decided, you know what, I want to go home. Um, uh, I mean, after 9-11 occurred, because I had started my journey in 2000 and then ended up when 9-11 happened, said, okay, you know what, I want to go home. So she had said, stop by, you know, and see me, you know, visit me when you, when you get here. So that's how our friendship began. And so we would communicate and she then invited me to come to Iowa in 2008. She said, I've got this town that I think you should see. She and her husband took me out to the site, what was left. And I couldn't believe it. You know, she told me the history. I couldn't believe such a town existed and literally in the middle of cornfield. And like I said, literally at that time in history. So each time I would come visit her, I would go to the State Historical Society and I would listen to these tapes of people talking about this amazing town. And I was just enthralled. And again, I was writing romance, so I didn't know what I was going to do with this, but I just couldn't let the story go. When I was looking for I, you know, a lower cost of living, um, looking for a, a place I could live where I could take more time off and didn't have to work because I was doing consulting. I wanted to take months off and, and work and take months off. And I thought, well, if I lower my cost of living, I can do that. And I was in Vermont at the time, in love with Vermont, and I couldn't find a house there that I wanted to pay the price for. And so my Lee, who had for like 15, 14 years been saying, move to Iowa, move to Iowa. I'm like, nah, nah, I'm not moving to Iowa. And I finally decided, fine. I found this beautiful home that was similar to the one in Vermont, half the price. I said, you know what? I'm going to move to Iowa and I can buy that house and I can write the story about, I can write something about Buxton. So that's how I ended up here. That house deal fell through. I ended up buying another house and that's how I ended up, you know, here in Iowa writing about Buxton. I know you do a number of presentations about this this lost town, this this as you describe it, this black utopia. And so you do these presentations, and you're also drawing out lessons that you can parlay into um, lessons for today. What are those lessons that you're trying to draw and to share with people? You know, here we are, the year after a tumultuous presidential election. Um, we are in a period where the murder of George Floyd catalyzed social unrest across the country. One could reasonably say that they feel somewhat sad and pessimistic about the state of um, the world today. And so here we have this book you know, about Buxton, which doesn't exist anymore. And, and so I'm wondering, what is it? What are the lessons that you're drawing from that time and hoping to parlay into something that is resonant for today? Yeah. I like to clarify first, when I say the black utopia of Buxton, Iowa, of course, Buxton was not a utopia. You know, there were problems there. People are coming to this town with their own preconceived ideas. You've got people coming from the South who, you know, some of the black people had, you know, been raised not to trust white people. You've got people coming there with racist, you know, maybe racist ideas. So I just meant for its time. But what we can learn from that is even though you had that, you didn't have problems like that, at least according to residents, there was no major racial division, let's just say, uh, in Buxton that was overt anyway. So when we look at this, there's, there's numerous lessons that can be learned. This is what happens, that sense of at least people getting along is because everybody had access to equal resources. You had equity in Buxton. Jobs were plentiful. Anybody could get a loan from the bank, you know, to to do to um own the to uh, start their own business. 
uh, which was not the norm in, in coal mining towns. If you wanted to start a business, you could. Um, if you, you know, wanted to be something else, like go to school and learn something, you could. There were all of these extracurricular activities at the YMCA where people taught things, there were classes. My point is you had all of this available to people. So there was no need for people to fight for anything. You know, there was equal access and you could make as much money as you wanted to. And if you squandered it all, you could squander it all if you wanted to and own, you know, owe the, the company every penny you made. So I think that's one example of, you know, things you can learn when people are given equal access to resources and really given this sense of equity and have the ability to actually have a good life and strive and do what they want. It creates this community of people getting along, of people, you know, working together. And even if people chose that, you know, I'm not going to interact or I'm not going to participate as much. Okay, well, they had the freedom to do that if they so chose. So I think that's one lesson you can learn from that. I think another lesson is, again, giving people this sense of empowerment and this sense of encouraging people to, to do things, to better themselves, to you know, take advantage of opportunities, giving them opportunities um, that they can take advantage of. Um, I think that's something that you can learn of what happens when that happens. You create a community that is good for everyone because again, 40 independent businesses in a town of 5,000, that's a coal mining town where coal mining is the number one industry for that town. This was not the norm. And yet, and still you have this community that's thriving and you have people coming from outside of Buxton to do business in Buxton, to trade for goods, to buy goods, et cetera. So again, it's empowering people and allowing them to rise to whatever occupation or whatever it is that they want to do, giving them that opportunity. Another thing I found interesting is that Buxton had no police force. It was an unincorporated town, so the company pretty much ran it. And so they elected their own justices of the peace and constables. They also had a, gosh, I'm drawing a blank on what the name of that uh, organization was, but they also had this organization that would also uh, fine residents, like if men were acting disorderly, um, they would have to pay a fine. And that fine went into this pot that was also used as when minors had accidents. So my point is, they had also this infrastructure here where people were actively involved in the community. Everybody, like these constables or whatever, were known by people in the community. It wasn't this outside force who didn't live there coming in and trying to maintain order. And then, of course, if there was anything that they couldn't handle, it was handled by the, you know, the sheriff in Albia would have to come in. But my point is, so there's another thing you can learn as well, is when you have people that have a vested interest in the community that are helping to, that are actually um, involved in the community and are actually helping also to kind of keep order in the community, um, again, you have that connection to the community. So those are like a few things. I mean, I think I could go on, but those are like a few things that I, I think we can learn from Buxton. Try to wake up from a dream It's harder than it seems Birds are flying This is where I should belong.
Emerge Iowa, you were in the class of 2020, and it's a program for women who plan to run for public office. It feels to me as if from the lessons of history and your own personal experience and your passion that you've been articulating a prescription for what would make for a, a good community using these lessons. Do you have an intention to explore public office? Emerge Iowa is a, a program for women, as you mentioned, who want to or have maybe have aspirations for entering public office. And so it it's an awesome program. It kind of breaks it down, you know, all the details of how to run for office, fundraising, you know, what's expected, you know, how to run your campaign, all of this. And so I was actually kind of nominated for that. Oh, we think you'd be good for this. Why don't you take it? And because life is about the chase and because I'm always about new opportunities and I'm like, I don't really know. I'd never considered public office, but when something comes my way and it's like, oh, that's interesting. I kind of go for it and just kind of see where that takes me. Right. So I took the course and I learned a lot and I walked away with that, realizing I don't want to run for public office because that's probably not me. Fast forward, though, after doing that, an opening opened up with Iowa Starting Line, which is this political uh, online publication, and it was covering Waterloo. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. I'll get to write about, I said, I don't want to really write about politics per se, maybe the way politics impact certain things, but I want to do more like stories. And the fact that Waterloo had a, a large African-American population, I'm like, okay, this is great. So again, I'm kind of like writing kind of loosely about politics here and I'm going to city council meetings and I'm learning things. And then I was learning that, oh my gosh, who knew? I never knew city council had so much of an impact on, you know, the local politics had so much of an impact on a, a city more so in some ways than say, you know, the, the house or the Senate in some ways. My point to this is I was like, wow. So then fast forward to living where I live now and I was like, okay, I got involved in this, you know, a Tumwins for racial justice. And then I started, you know, going to these different meetings, you know, for different things like, okay, how do we create a more inclusive community and get people to do things? And so even though I keep saying that I'm not going to do anything related to politics, I seem to have gotten more involved in this sense of like wanting to make a difference in my own community a little more and still in ways in which as it relates to in some ways the work that I'm doing with um, history, my interest in history and that, that sense of inclusion. So I, I want to ask you to expand a little bit more on that sense of place, sense of community, sense of home, and you feeling drawn into that. I want to approach it, approach it tangentially, though, by taking a step back and asking you about the decision to quit your job at that time a little while ago and decide to go and live in South America. What was going on in, in your mind when you thought, yeah, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to not just move, I'm going to live on a different continent? It's interesting in terms of that decision. I'd always wanted to live in another country. Um, I had gone on an exchange program when I graduated from college um, and loved it. It was in Mexico. And I thought, wow, I'd love to live in another country. And that had always been a goal. And there were a few health scares with my parents, both of them at that time. This was 2011 is when I did this. And so that plus, you know, just being bored 
to tears with what I was doing, I was like, you know what, now's a good time to leave. I'll never get to do this if I don't do it now. So I quit my job and took off, got a job teaching English as a second language in Chile first, just to get me started, acclimated. And my goal was to live there. I didn't know where I was going to do, how I was going to make money, but it's like, you know what, I'm just going to go there and it all will work out. So interestingly enough, Chile wasn't for me. I packed up you know, took buses way again, going on the back roads of South America, trying to figure out where I wanted to live. It's like, you know, wh- where do I want to stay? And I ended up in this small town called Yanque in Peru. I remember, you know, one of the hotel owners there, you know, we were having dinner and he was one of the few people that spoke English and we were chatting. And he says, so why are you really here? You know, nobody quits their job and nobody does this. And I started this impromptu job. I was going to create a website for this town. And I did. And I was going to, you know, interview, use my BA skills and interview people and put their, their take pictures and put their, their businesses up here on this on this website. So I did this. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, that's all great. But why did you do it? And I was a little bit offended. I was like, Well, no, there's no other reason I wanted to come here, you know, whatever. But that question has always stayed in the back of my mind. Why did I do that? Because whenever somebody asks me something that triggers a reaction, I have to figure out it's not them. It's like, what is going on in me? Ironically, as again, I'm doing this research and learning about all this history about Black people that I never knew, it tied in to me that the reason why I've always been enamored with other cultures and other countries and why I went to um, South America was because, first of all, when you go to another country, They don't have this perception of black people in terms of you're in a box. They're like, they don't really know what to expect. You're American, but they don't really have experience with a lot of black people. So you aren't really put in that box that you are here and you kind of get special treatment. You know, it's because it's like they want to get to know you. So there's that feeling of not having to deal with, you know, racism or whatever. It's like, okay. Secondly, it's like, I've always been envious of people that have culture. You know, it's like these people have an identity, they have culture. Like I've wanted to go to Africa, but I haven't been there yet. But it's like, there's this, wow, how cool is that? You've got a language, you've got this, I've got nothing, right? And so I came back from that. And then as I started really delving into history and finding out that, oh my gosh, there is all this history, all the stuff that black people have done when they were enslaved, when they were not, when, you know, the massacres, the inventions, the, I mean, all of this, the communities, the towns, the fact that, you know, the infrastructure that was built, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have got a culture here. I have more of a, of a, of a, culture or a sense of place here than I ever imagined. It dawned on me that, okay, that is why I went to South America. I wanted to have that feeling of belonging, even though I really couldn't, or that sense of at least if you don't belong, maybe you can feel accepted, uh, whatever. So my point is that that was an aha moment for me, which I always look at kind of the irony of it, is that I discovered that by doing this research and because I was uncovering all this, that then led to Uniting Through History, which is the nonprofit that I started wanting to say, you know what, more people need to be aware that, 
you know, black history is American history and it's an integral part of history. And it's not something that you just study one month or one chapter of one book or one side note or one whatever. Whenever you're talking about anything, cowboys, black people are in that. You're talking about math and invention, black people are in that. It's like, it's an interwoven, integrated part of history. And I wanted to come up with ways that people could immerse themselves in the history to really get it. You said something to me before, it's not a direct quote, but it was something along the lines of for a period of time, you felt apart from culture in the country. And as a result of your experiences, you now feel a part of culture and community. And it feels as if a lot of that has coalesced in Iowa in connection with Buxton, but now specifically where you're living. And I feel as if that's how you talked about that that it's a surprise to you. I mean, you've landed at this spot and, and who knows where the future is taking you, but that feels to be somewhat of a surprise to you. I wonder if you do think about what home and community means differently now as a sum of your experiences. It's interesting because I have an appreciation for both, meaning I will never be the type of person that stays in one place and lives there forever and what have you. I need that variety. Um, I ended up getting a dog again. It was by accident. I wasn't planning on it. Like I said, my life really does. The writing happened by accident. The careers I've had happened by accident. And everything I do, the other motto I have is if I'm not afraid, it's not worth doing because everything I do is some kind of a stretch goal. It's always like, okay, I've never done this before. I'm I'm afraid, but let's do it. And so the point is that I bought an RV because that had been something that I wanted to do was to kind of travel around. But it also was a way that, well, now I've got this dog and I don't want to be tied to one place and that plane ride is not going to work. So the RV also gave me the, the ability to, you know, travel with the dog. I now spend a certain amount of time in Iowa, but I still satisfy that travel or that move around part by leaving Iowa. And especially I I totally get this whole snowbird thing. I totally get that at this point in life. It's like last winter when I was here, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never doing this again. So I kind of like this picking that part of time to to travel and, and do stuff. So my sense of community has changed in the, in, in a way that I'm like, okay, I can see staying in one place for an extended period of time, but I still need to be able to satisfy that need I have of moving around and experiencing other things. A couple of questions as we, we've hit the top of the hour here. This um, love for history, and so I'm borrowing this from, from the New York Times, any three historical characters to dinner, who comes to mind? I don't know, to be honest, if I can answer that question. 
I don't know. There's so many people and I feel like there's so many people I haven't even met yet. I mean, I haven't even learned about yet. Okay. Maybe that was the tougher question. Maybe that, maybe this is me. (laughs) (laughs) Given, given, I, I, I think, um, I think I used the word adventurer for you earlier. Um, given that life is about the chase, what is next? Do you think for you in terms of, um, a bold chapter? Let me answer that other question. It kind of came to me in a way in which, you know, when I look at the fascination I have with, you know, the town of Buxton and I look at what was happening, you know, in the country and I just can't believe what it was like literally living in that time period for a black person. I can't imagine what it's like to be where every single thought and movement is regulated by Jim Crow, where it's like, okay, the simple task of walking down the street is a life-threatening thing. It's like, okay, I've got to give up the right away on the sidewalk. I can't look a white person in the eye. I can't shake their hand. I can't call them by the first name. I can't, you know, laugh at them. I can't be perceived. I can't bump in. I mean, all of that. Then there's all the legislation that keeps them from doing things. And it's like convict labor. If you're caught not doing anything, you could be thrown in jail because you're idle. I mean, this whole, I can't imagine what that would be like. So it's almost like if I could be guaranteed in time travel, that I could go back in time and see what did that really feel like and meet some of these people like Ida B. Wells and, you know, these women and men that have done things and then come back to where I was so I could get that greater understanding. That would be something that would be that would be amazing. My guest today has been author and adventurer Rochelle Chase, author of Creating the Black Utopia of Buxton, Iowa, and Lost Buxton. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So in terms of what's next for me... It sounds like what's next is 1901. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you were going to answer the question. (laughs) Right. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Yeah.